You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. The Chicago Institute for Psychoanalysis was founded in 1932 by Franz Alexander. The Institute is one of the oldest and most prestigious psychoanalytic training centers in the world. Its mission is to provide training in the theory and practice of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and to enhance psychodynamic thought through research and scholarship. Will the Institute survive? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. I'm here today with Dr. David Terman, the director of the Chicago Institute for Psychoanalysis. Dr. Terman is extremely well-published and has been a practicing psychiatrist for as long as I've been alive. Welcome to the show, Dr. Terman. Thank you, Dr. Kaskill. Nice to be here. I'd like to start with some easy questions for you, for our listening audience. Uh, Many doctors know about analysis. They know it exists. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they're really that familiar with what exactly psychoanalysis is. And that's probably because we don't really have a lot of training in our residencies if there's no psychoanalysts around. That's right. That's right. And that's a real problem these days. But I'd be glad to tell you something about psychoanalysis. Uh, Psychoanalysis is a specific treatment in which people reproduce important aspects of their early lives, their childhood, and their relationships in their relationship with the doctor, with the analyst. And that happens by their coming frequently and saying whatever comes to their mind. And amazingly, what comes to the mind begins to show a pattern of feelings and relationships that you can begin to understand and over time even change. So what the layperson thinks of free association is really not free association, that you actually can construct patterns from that and figure out exactly what's going on in the, in the uh, psyche of the patient. Right. Free associations uh, do show patterns that become evident to the analyst and often to the patient himself or herself uh, that show the operations of the unconscious and of, of patterns of thinking, perceiving, behaving that people engage in all the time but are really not aware of. And is that the purpose of the couch and the fact that in strict analysis, the, the patient is really not looking at the analyst because if, if, if he was looking at him, he may not be so likely to say certain things. That, that is the reason for the couch. So the couch isn't always used. It's mostly used because it facilitates that open experience, the patient with him or herself. Sometimes people are so uncomfortable with that, though, that they need to sit in the chair and look at the analyst and, and, and look at his or her responses. Are there other times where the patient really is not recreating a relationship with the doctor and there is no transference occurring? Uh, will, will analysis, you know, will it be able to take its bite? Will it work? Well, there's always some kind of recreation of a relationship. Sometimes the recreation of the relationship is uh, stay away, mm-hmm. keep off, uh, or, or I, I, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Those kinds of recreations are if if the person stays, they can sometimes be amenable to understanding and changing. That doesn't always happen, but that's part of the job of the analytic process to work on those kinds of patterns that keep people away or or or, or make them very mistrustful and so on. Sometimes you can't get through those those kinds of patterns, but often one can if you try to understand it. Is that resistance you're talking about? 
yes, one can one can call that resistance. More friendly, maybe to talk about it is as learned uh, ways of protecting oneself, often for very good reasons in the past. That is, there is often trauma of one sort or another that necessitates the child protecting him or herself. How would a doctor listening decide what which one of his patients should go into analysis versus just plain old psychotherapy versus just uh, throwing him on Prozac? Good question. I think, for the most part, the last alternative, just throwing him on Prozac, is probably not a good alternative. Not that one shouldn't use an antidepressant at times and that that can be very, very helpful. But I think most of the studies show, and certainly our experience shows, that when one administers uh, any kind of psychotropic medication, it's always useful to have some kind of psychological treatment, some kind of relationship along with that. So I would say one would never decide simply to throw a patient on some kind of psychotropic medication. As far as the indications of psychotherapy versus analysis, that's a that's a harder determination. I had always heard that there are three criteria for going into analysis. You need the time, you need the money, and you need the problems. Those are mostly true, although there are also low-fee analyses available so that uh, money is not always uh, a central issue, though it, is, it can be very important. You certainly need the time, and you certainly need to have the kind of problems that uh, make you very uncomfortable and continue to bother you over a long period of time. Let's talk about the time commitment for real analysis. I am under the impression that that takes four to five days a week of seeing the doctor. Is that correct, incorrect? That's mostly correct. Sometimes you can do it with on three days a week as well. Uh, uh, that's a, a subject of some religious controversy. But for the most part, yes, somewhere between three and five times a week. Although for some people, they can sometimes get a very meaningful process going on twice a week. But optimally, one should go three to five times a week to be able to, uh, to, to experience the process. If you've just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and I'm with Dr. David Terman, the director of the Chicago Institute for Psychoanalysis. We're talking a little bit about what analysis is, who it works for, and uh, I'd like to get back to the Chicago Institute for Psychoanalysis. Sure. I, I don't know how many institutes there are in the United States, and I'm curious what distinguishes one from the other. Sure. There are 30, about 30 institutes in the United States at this time. Uh, they're all independent. They're in most, they are in the large urban areas in the country. Chicago has one such institute. New York has about five. Uh, Los Angeles has several more. How do you feel about that? About, that, that about, Chicago only has one. I feel very proud of that, <laughs> actually. I, I, it's part of the distinction of Chicago because many of these multiple institutes in other cities have arisen because of personality problems and personal fights, and one group goes off and founds another institute. Here in Chicago, we've managed to... Uh, negotiate our differences and, and, and differences in approaches and, and, and theories uh, in a much more positive way and have remained together as a cohesive and coherent uh, institution for the last 75 years. Can you define self-psychology for me and tell me a little bit about its founder, Heinz Kohut? Sure. Well, that's another point of pride in Chicago. We claim and are the source of self-psychology in Chicago and in the world. It was really begun by a man named Heinz Kohut, who was an analyst here at the Chicago Institute, who, out of his 
traditional continuing psychoanalytic work developed new ideas, which is really very uh, a very exciting uh, thing to happen, as will, does happen in any science. He developed ideas that challenged some of the uh, traditional ideas of analysis and brought some new perspectives to it. Essentially, what Kohut did, uh, well, to contrast, the traditional analytic ideas were something like embryological development. That is, that everything unfolded kind of in itself. It unfolded as the so-called drives and the defenses against the drives and the intersection with reality which modified the drives and built the structure. But it was all, in a sense, self-contained. It's true that the environment played some role, mainly in frustrating the drives, which caused structure to be built. And relationships were looked at, but not as made as central as occurred in self-psychology. Paradoxically, Kohut found that in order to develop a self, you required others. And so it began to introduce the systematic experience of others into development. And this was a very central, it has proved to be a very central factor in development. And so that we know that we're not just self-contained differentiating organisms, we require the responsiveness and the interaction with the significant others, with the caretakers in our environment. And those interactions develop structure, and the misinteractions, the misfits, the difficulties, the lacks, result in other kinds of structures or lacks of structure, which, again, are, are played out in a psychoanalytic experience and hopefully are either corrected and or filled in. It's made a big difference in how we understand what happens between the patient and ourselves. Can you elaborate or actually simplify that a little more for me and my listeners? Go ahead. Let's say if we picked somebody with a garden variety, a narcissistic personality disorder, how would uh, Freud have treated him and how would Kohut have treated him differently? That's a good question. A garden variety narcissistic disorder in the hands of Freud would probably be not seen as a narcissistic disorder. It would probably be seen as centrally an Oedipal problem from which the person was trying to escape escape by regressing, by going back to earlier phases, or by insisting on his or her own importance in some way. And the the task of the analyst would have been to get through those, quote, regressive uh, symptoms and, and attitudes to get to the Oedipal, the Oedipal conflict, to show them that really what was central to them was their love for the opposite-sex parent and their identification and rivalry with the same-sex same parent. That would have been the emphasis of, of, say, Freud or a traditional analyst. For Kohut, uh, he would understand the needs of such a patient as having come out of uh, difficulties in the patient's relationship with one or both parents, difficulties in being responded to, difficulties in maintaining the picture of the parent as, a, as an ideal, perfect person. These were very important uh, developmental needs of the child, which when they weren't met, when the parent was unresponsive or the parent was uh, traumatically weak or unavailable, didn't permit the child to develop further. And Kohut would stay with, as would, as would a self-psychology, would stay with these 
uh, relationships as they unfolded and understand the patient's both disappointment and need for these kinds of responsivenesses and in, in interactions so that they could then go on. And the Oedipus may or may not figure into such a, uh, su- such a person. So the sexuality part of it has kind of been dropped off from Freud to Kohut. Well, it it has a different place. Sexuality was central, very central to Freud and to classical analysis. In self-psychology, sexuality is there. It can be there, but it's it's when it becomes problematic, it's almost always secondary to a problem in the self. That is to a problem in the in either in the cohesion of the self or the development of the self or in some distortion of the self. When sexuality gets very, very problematic, it's almost always a sign of self-problem. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. David Terman. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com, and thank you for listening.